Romans 13, we are going to read in a few minutes, or part thereof. Um, it's the beginning of the year, and so some of our ministries are now back up and running, and not yesterday, but the Saturday before, the new men's ministry, the revamped new men's ministry, had a, a breakfast and outlined what they're doing for the year, so if you haven't caught up with that, that's worth catching up with. We had a beautiful breakfast, we had smoked porridge. <coughs> That's how they sold it to us. Burnt porridge is what that means. And it definitely did have a smoky flavour, so if you weren't here, you missed out. There's a whole program, and I encourage you to grab one of those and get on board with some of the good things that uh, the men's ministry are going aiming to do this year. Yesterday, we had uh, our women's ministry um, continuing. They had a great morning. Uh, lace ministry, it's called. Um, and the pastoral team, the full pastoral team, had a retreat yesterday down in Hope House. We spent three hours in the morning talking about the issue of governance and addressing some of the issues that are affecting us as a leadership and uh, trying to put in place a recommendation to bring to, for your input and then eventually to a members' meeting for decision. Um, so continue to pray, pray, please, for the pastoral team and that decision-making process. Um, this afternoon we have another service. Normally we have uh, five congregations on a Sunday, but this afternoon we're having an extra service at two o'clock. I hope many of you can come, because at two o'clock this afternoon we're going to be inducting the Reverend David Butterfield to be a full-time associate pastor here at Sunnybank. Isn't he already doing it? Yeah. We wanted to wait until the birth of his granddaughter before we actually did this. No, we didn't. It just turned out to be uh, the timing of it and we wanted to do it in the afternoon because there are, then other congregations can come. If we did it in this congregation, then others would miss out. And plus there are some folk outside the church, you know. Uh, believe it or not, David has friends and colleagues outside the church who apparently like him. So <laughs> they'll be here. We expect to come and support him in that. So let me encourage this congregation for uh, you likewise turn up at 2 o'clock and it'll be a service that'll go for around about an hour, 50 minutes, an hour, something like that. And then we'll have... A lovely afternoon tea together and we can congratulate and support David and Rosemary as they kick on as, uh, in ministry here at Sunnybank. And we're delighted that they are here, aren't we? Yes, indeed. Um, this Wednesday, Alpha starts. And if you've never done Alpha, and I know some of you folk have done Alpha, if you've never done Alpha, let me encourage you to do it. You've been a Christian for years, do Alpha. You will learn things. You'll do the teaching, I think, is of uh, high quality. Uh, and the openness, particularly in the alpha context of meeting in groups where other people are asking questions, is likewise stimulating. That someone may very well ask a question that you've always been asking and never had the answer to, or they'll ask a question which is going to stretch you, that you've never been asked that question before, and so you're going to have to do some learning as well. Anyway, alpha is great. It's great for, uh, as uh, Andrew and Corinne had says to us, it's... Um, designed initially for people who are seeking the truth about Jesus who are not yet there but it's also designed for those who have found Jesus who are new believers it's a great reinforcing process so that's Alpha and that'll be after Easter uh, for all of second term something else is starting it's four weeks and Sunnybank has been invited to be the guinea pigs for the I mean the the uh, run the pilot course for a thing called the unfinished story you would have read about this in your bulletin over the last several weeks um, the unfinished story uh, some of you are familiar with the Kairos course. This is a, a uh, Kairos is nine weeks, this is four weeks. And it's a, a similar thing. Um, 
and it's designed to teach us uh, what the Bible teaches about what's on God's heart in terms of mission, the unfinished story. The story is still being written. People are still coming to faith in the Lord Jesus. So it, it's a, um, an evangelistic and mission-orientated thing to equip you in your understanding of what God's purposes are. So it's, there'll be Bible teaching, there'll be historical references as well, there's reading to do. And again, each Wednesday night starts this Wednesday and goes for a couple of hours. And so if you uh, would, are interested in that, then at the end of the service, there'll be some sign-up sheets for you to consider doing it. Four weeks, for the next four Wednesday nights only. So here is an opportunity, and as I said, we've been invited to be a, run the pilot program to give feedback of saying, yeah, this was good, no, this wasn't good, and then it'll be produced, and then it'll be distributed to the wider church. So if you would like to be part of that, that would be very, very helpful. That's um, an initiative, I think, of our World Focus team. Um. <clears throat> I think that's all the announcements I think that I have to give. Um. So I'm going to pray, and then I want to read God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, in the passage that we're about to read, we've been singing the truths throughout this service, that we owe it all to you, Jesus, that we are indebted to you for what you have done in our lives. And there is a corresponding obligation that is now our responsibility uh, that you are the sovereign one that you're holy and that you walk with us and you work in us that you reign in us and in fact lord you're stronger you're stronger than the power of sin in us and that you're committed to us becoming transformed in the image of jesus so now lord through the reading of your word through the teaching of it through the application of it to our lives and the work of your holy spirit we pray that you would not only speak to us, but that you would challenge and convict, that you would change us, that you would empower us, encourage us through this time to draw near to you and to recommit, to surrender all, because we do, Lord, owe it all to you. We ask this blessing, Lord Jesus, in your name. And everyone said... The Word of God says in Romans chapter 13 and from verse 8... Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command, love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let's put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. This is God's word. There are three titles I have for this morning's talk. 
And at the end of the at the end of uh, the talk this morning, the teaching time, I invite you to pick one of those titles or to create your own title to act as a mnemonic, a, a, a recalling device throughout the coming week. We could have called it the Christian Dress Code. These are tweetable, by the way. These are brilliant titles that I'm now sharing with you. Christian Dress Code. Second title, The Debt That We Always Owe. The Debt We Always Owe. Or, I like this one, Love on the Level. Love on the Level. And I'll explain that as we come to it, probably. There are four truths that I want you to do at the end of this, as we work through this passage this morning. So I'm going to give you those four now, so that if you're like me, and if you didn't sleep well last night like I didn't, and you drift off like I might, then these are the four things that I think are the application that come out of this passage of Scripture. Number one, let us cultivate a sense of debt. That'll be fun, won't it? Number two, let's enlarge our understanding of neighbour. Number three... Let's cultivate a sense of time. And number four, let's intentionally put off the deeds of darkness and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I shall repeat and apply those four truths as we come to the end of the talk. There was a Roman nobleman who was um, apparently, supposedly, very wealthy. But when he died it was discovered that he had left behind enormous debts, somehow that he had managed to conceal throughout his lifetime. Because of those debts, the estate was taken to an auction and Caesar Augustus, the Caesar, said to his agent, buy that man's pillow for me. Buy that man's pillow for me at the auction. Why? Augustus was asked, he said, that pillow must be particularly conducive to sleep if its late owner, in spite of all of his debts, could sleep on it. Astute comment, isn't it? Debts have a way of keeping us up at night. Debts have a way of creating stress or pressure. It wasn't debts that kept me up last night. But this passage says, right at the beginning of it, verse 8, let no debt remain outstanding. So let's just get that out of the road straight away. If you're in debt, most of us have a debt, and pay it off. I'm not saying pay it off immediately, but pay it off as soon as possible and continue the process of paying it off. Don't renege on your responsibilities, is what the Apostle Paul is saying. If you've got a debt, I've got a debt. I've got a huge house. No, I don't. I've got a huge debt for a house that I've got. And it's going to take me, oh, another couple of weeks before Rhonda pays that off. <laughs> That's why she's working. She keeps saying to me, can I stop working full-time? No, go and earn money. <clears throat> because the Bible says, sweetheart, the Bible says, let no debt <laughs> remain outstanding. Word of God says to you that. There are Christians who have the silly idea. When I became a Christian, I thought, Jesus is coming back. Let's live it up, go into huge debt. Who cares? When Jesus comes back, debt's cancelled. Some people think like that. Some people act like that. It's not the Christian way to think. That's not honouring the Lord Jesus. We are obligated to pay our debts. We have responsibilities in this world. Let's meet them. Pay your taxes. In the verse before that, the Apostle Paul is applying about 
the truth of we need to submit to those in authority over us. We spoke about that last Sunday in our services. Verse 6 says, pay your taxes, pay whatever else you owe, uh, give to everyone what you owe them. Taxes, revenue, respect and honour. Let no debt remain outstanding, the Apostle Paul says. And then he goes from the physical financial dimension of our responsibility to pay back our debts. And that's all I want to say about it. Oh no, I'll say one more thing. And he moves on to another debt, a continuing debt that we will always have and that we can never fully pay out. Regardless of how much we invest in it, we will still be obligated with this debt, the debt to love one another. The only other thing I want to say about the debt thing is that some Christians, I think mistakenly, depending on the translation of that verse, say it's not right for churches, it's not right for Christians to go and borrow money. We shouldn't go into debt. I don't think that's healthy and I don't think it's a biblical balance. Uh, the Bible talks about uh, lenders and interests and borrowing uh, money, but it talks about our responsibility of if you borrow it, pay it back. That's quite acceptable. I just wanted to make that comment. Um, and so some people would wrestle with uh, churches going into debt, borrowing money for a building program or whatever else. And I don't think we're going into borrowing mode on this, but you may notice this morning there's a building works have started on our office block over here. That just started the other day. That'll go on for the next couple of weeks, I guess. The offices are being extended and turned into an open floor plan. And so that's what's going on over there. Oh, no one anything except the debt, the responsibility, the obligation to love. One debt. Can't discharge it fully. We'll never be in a place where I said, well, I'm done. I've done all the loving that I need to do. I don't have to love anybody anymore. We'll never be in that position. No matter how long we live, no matter how long you've been following Jesus, you still have this debt to pay. How did we come into this debt? Well, we came into this debt because, number one, we live in God's world. We live under his rule. And because of what God has done for us in Jesus, and we have received his love, the cancellation of our sin and the penalty removed, because we have received his love, we are now indebted to pass it on to others. That's how we got the debt. As we have received, so Jesus says, go and do likewise to others. And in fact, in Matthew chapter 18, the Lord Jesus tells a pretty punchy parable where he talks about this servant, just to remind you very, very quickly, who went in, who had an enormous debt, millions of dollars or whatever the coinage was that he owed. And the king called him in and said, pay your debt. <clears throat> I can't. Mercy. Please let me have mercy. Give me time and I'll, I'll pay back some of it, but I can't pay back at all. And the king had mercy on him. Sent him out. You know the story. This servant whose incredible debt has just been cancelled, he's now free, goes to another servant who owes him $5. Grabs him by the throat and threatens him, pay me what you owe me. And then the king hears about it and calls him back and says, because I cancelled your debt, because you have received so much, you should have been generous and giving to others. And then he took him and threw him in prison and said, now you'll stay in there until you pay off your debt, which he couldn't do. Then Jesus says, so will your heavenly father treat you. He's talking to his disciples. If you do not from your heart forgive others. That's a pretty strong word. But Jesus is serious when he says it and he means it. We are in debt and we're under obligation 
to have a given attitude towards others. And it actually says to one another, and often in the New Testament, one another is an internal reference to one another as Christians. But in this context, the one another is really to one another who are part of the human race. It's to all people, to believers and to unbelievers, as in fact he has just outlined in chapter 12 about loving your enemies, forgiving those who want to do you harm, and so on. So that's how we got this debt. And Jesus is expecting us to love others as he has loved us. And in fact, the Lord Jesus in the new commandment, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. As I have loved you, so love one another. The way I've done it for you, do it to others. And then the great evangelistic strategy of the Lord Jesus is that if we did that, then all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. The implication, of course, is that not only know it, but they'll become disciples or followers of Jesus. And the New Testament is just filled with this command. It's nearly every New Testament author uh, refers to it, cites it, expands it, applies it. What is this thing, love? We talk about it all the time. And it's not the sentimental syrupy thing. It's not what the Beatles sung about, you know, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. Not that. And nor is it the romantic love either. The love the New Testament is talking about, the agape love, the love of Jesus for us, is this determined commitment to negatively not do harm, but a determination to do good to the other, to help. It comes out of intentionality. It comes out of choice. Back in chapter 12, verse 9, the apostle has says, love must be sincere. But it's also discriminating. It's not loving everything. It's loving that which is good and helpful and hating what is evil. It's discriminating. Um, this love is something that we choose to do. It's not spontaneous. It requires effort, requires choice, requires intentionality, thinking. We talk about, erroneously, of falling in love. And you don't fall in love. There could be a chemical reaction that happens immediately, but you don't, because if you fall in, you can fall out. That's not love. It requires thought and effort and choice and actions. Love is seeking the highest good for the other person. Now, I know this is idealistic, and the reality is we all fall short. I fall short. We all must continue to grow. I must continue to grow in this area of developing love towards one another, towards others. When you bump into somebody, if you've ever borrowed money from somebody, when you bump into them, the first thing when you see them is you're conscious of, I owe them. I owe them X amount. It's in the forefront of your mind. It may not be in theirs, but it would be in yours. That's what the passage is saying. That when you bump into other people, let this be at the forefront of your mind. I owe them. I am indebted to them. Because of God's great love for me, when I encounter another human, I, am, I owe the debt of love. I am to consider what is the best for them. I am not to do harm to them. And I am to intentionally make choices which are going to be helpful to them even when they intend harm to me, even when they persecute, or whatever it is that they're doing. Love your enemies. That's the truth of what Jesus is calling us to. This is high-level love. 
who can do it? We fail. But don't use that as an excuse to give up. In fact, the reason I would call this message um, love on the level is that when Jesus was asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? He answers, the, great, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Vertical, love God. Then he adds, and the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. Horizontal, love on the level. And that's where this passage is focused. He's not focusing upon ver vertical love, us loving God. That's an assumption in the mind of the Apostle Paul from chapter 12. God has loved us. You have committed yourself to him. We've got that sorted out. Now let's focus upon the horizontal application of that experience. That's why he'll go on to say that this loving your neighbour, loving one another, is a fulfilment of the law. It's God's will. This is what God intended by giving us the law. He wants us to be loving one another. And the law expands and applies, illustrates how we can do that. And the Lord Jesus says that we are to love our neighbour as we love ourselves. Now that phrase has been misused, particularly in the later 20th century and into this century, by Christian counsellors and psychologists who teach us that we must love one another. We must have high self-esteem. Well, we do need to have a healthy self-perspective, but it's not about um, a psychologically driven view of ourself. I think the truth of what Jesus is saying is that we are to extend to other faulty sinners the same patience, the same care as we extend to ourselves as a faulty sinner. We take care of ourselves. When we're hungry, we feed ourselves. When we're thirsty, we drink. When we cut ourselves, we put a band-aid on. When our nails splits, we get a band-aid and we trim it and we fix it up. We look after ourselves. Do that to others. That's what Jesus is saying. Extend to them just the same common courtesies how you look after yourself. Now, I know I'm just reminding you of all of these sorts of things. And as I've said on numerous occasions, we fall short. So there's something we should do about that. Whenever we fall short of God's standard, we should confess, should ask God's forgiveness, ask for his empowering, should move on. James Boyce says, how does this love function? He says these four things very quickly, and I'll pass them on to you. He says, listen to one another. Really listen. We need to learn how to listen. If the most valuable commodity that we possess in this world is time, because it's so limited and it's passing, then to take time to listen to somebody else, to invest time in them, is in fact a very precious and great gift to give to another person. Listen to one another. Share with one another, he says. Not just sharing material possessions, but really opening your heart and sharing vulnerably, being open and honest. And that's one of the purposes and values of both a life group or an accountability group. Encourage you to find your way into one of those. If you need help, just ask. It's two-way traffic, listening, but also sharing. Then he says, number three, forgive one another. We all sin, we all hurt, but we are to extend forgiveness, even before repentance, the Lord's Prayer. 
Forgive us, Lord, as we forgive those who sin against us. Have an attitude of forgiveness. Forgiveness is extended. Whether it's received or not by the other person is up to them and their attitude and their repentance. But from our perspective, we are to extend forgiveness. We're offering it. Just like God is offering the world forgiveness. Will it be received? And finally, he says, not only forgive one another, but serve one another. Just like Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, so let us do that. Let's do the, sometimes the menial tasks. And in John 13, in that passage about Jesus washing feet, he concludes by saying, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Now that you know these things, listen to one another, share with one another, forgive one another, serve one another. Now that you know that, now that you've been reminded of it, you'll be blessed if you do it. Sincere, sacrificial, selfless, serving love. Well, how can we do it? Not in our own strength. The reality is that God has already placed his love in our hearts. Romans chapter 5 verse 5 says that the love of God is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has already given us. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, when you received his grace and forgiveness, you got the gift of eternal life, you also received his presence. His spirit came and lives in you. And with the spirit comes the fruit of the spirit poured into your heart. It's not something we have to whip up. It's something we have to tap into. How do we tap into the vast resources the Father has already provided for us? Submit to the Holy Spirit. Submit to the Lord Jesus. Submit. Surrender your agenda to him. And that may mean that you need to be cleanse you may need to experience his forgiveness peter says to us in 1 peter chapter 1 verse 22 now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have a sincere love for each other then love one another deeply from the heart do you notice that now that you have purified yourselves go on to love one another and sincerely from the heart there is a place for cleansing, for confessing, for opening the ability to tap into the resources that the Father has placed within us by his Spirit. So surrender your agenda. Secondly, listen to him, certainly as he speaks to you through his word, but Paul says to the Thessalonians in chapter 4 and verse 9, Now about love for one another, we don't need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. About your love for one another, we don't need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God. God is teaching us. God is prompting us, reminding us, nudging us, if necessary, convicting us, correcting us. He wants us. We're under obligation. Just as he has loved us, so we are to love others. So... How's it going? Are you paying your debt? Are you acting in love towards others? If you're married, most of you, but not all of you are, begin with your spouse. Being loving towards them. Can't love them enough. It's impossible for Rhonda to love me more than God wants her to. And the reverse. It's impossible for me to love her too much. And God saying, whoa, that's too much. In fact, it's the other way. You can't love enough. Begin at home. 
Then a family at home, do it to the family or the extended family. Then work colleagues and church. Love one another. Let it impact the way you drive. I always use that illustration, don't I? Aim at their highest good. And their highest good is knowing Jesus. So aim to love and look for the opportunities to introduce them to Jesus. How can you improve if you're struggling with this? Walk with the Spirit. Surrender to him. Commit your life to him. We owe it all to you, Jesus. He's the Lord. Invite him to live and reign in you. Here is a challenge. I haven't come up with an answer yet, but I came up with this question. I want you to think of one person whom you don't love, whom you're not acting in love towards. Think about it. It may take some time. (laughs) You may have a vast list and you need to prioritise that. Pick one. And intentionally, prayerfully, when you come across their path, act in love towards them. Intentionally choose. But I don't feel like it. Who cares? That's not the command. It's not feel like it. It's do it. Love is a doing thing. And then the Apostle Paul uh, puts this in the context of an urgency. He says that we are to love and to love one another. This fulfills all of the law. It does no harm to others. Verse 11, and do this understanding the present time. There's a sense of urgency. Get on with it. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. He's talking to Christians. And some of them have nodded off. Some of them have gotten complacent and lazy. They're slumbering. They're sleeping spiritually. They're not active. They're not involved they're not passionately following jesus because paul says because our salvation is now nearer than when we first believed and if he wrote that nearly two thousand years ago guess what our salvation is nearer than when we first believed as well the night is nearly over the day is almost here we live in a dark world paul uses the illustration that this is like nighttime and the sun is beginning to rise the aborigines have a term for it before the sun gets up it's called picking any daylight It's that light you can see before the sun gets up. It's about 4.30 in the morning, sometime between 4.30 and 5 o'clock. I know, because that's when I wake up. And you can usually tell the time by the amount of light coming through the window. Yep, it's after 5. Maybe some of you have that experience as well. Well, the Apostle Paul says, it's picking any daylight time. The night is ending. The sun is rising. The sun is coming. Get dressed, be ready. A little boy ran in to see his mum one day. He was pretty distressed because the family clock had malfunctioned and instead of striking the normal number of hours, it struck 15 times. 15 times. He rushed into his mum and he said, Mum, it's later than it's ever been before. It is. It's later than it's ever been before. Jesus is coming. Be ready. If not in our lifetime then certainly at our death, Jesus is coming, John 14. And for this congregation, each ache, each pain, each grey hair, each wrinkle, each funeral is a reminder that it's later than it's ever been before. It's time to love one another, the Apostle is saying, and others as well. If we're going to succeed on this level of uh, loving on the level, then the Apostle Paul says verse 12 so we need to put aside the deeds of darkness and we need to put on the armor of light 
And he uses this analogy of putting off this set of clothes and putting on this set of clothes. And it's interesting, he's writing to Christians. And some of these Christians in the church of Rome or in the first century are slumbering and they're involved in deeds of darkness. Christians. Verse 13 describes them. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Sins of the flesh. And even as followers, we can fall into, get sucked into making those bad choices. If we walk in the light as we follow Jesus, then we will not suddenly, without warning, fall into the deeds of darkness. Sin begins usually in our minds. It can begin in the desires, but it then goes to the thought processes. And it's in the thinking processes that we toy with it, that we entertain it, that we replay it. Once you've begun this process, James chapter 1, then we start acting it out. That's why the Apostle Paul says, to present yourself as a living sacrifice to God and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't think like that. Otherwise, you'll find yourself on the slippery slope of sin. Well, how do you avoid it? Well, judge every sinful thought when it comes into your mind. Don't say, do not say, I won't think about that, I won't think about that, I won't think about that. Because the more you say that, the more you're reinforcing that in your brain. Don't say, I won't think about that. What you need to do is judge it, that's wrong, and you change your thinking to appropriate things. Philippians 4.8 says, if there's anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, think on those things. When sinful thoughts come into your mind, and they will, that's wrong, I'm not doing that. I'm doing this. I'm going to think about the Lord Jesus. I'm going to think about something else. Change what you are focusing on. Because the reality is to feel the desire to sin is the evidence of sin in us. To fulfill the desire to sin is evidence of the power of sin in us. As long as we are in this fleshly body, we will always experience the presence of sin within. It will not go away. Sometimes stronger and sometimes weaker, but it's always there. We live in this fallen world. But at no time... Now, this is theological truth. But at no time does a Christian have to yield to the power of sin. Sin is present in us. The desire is there. It will always be there sometimes stronger and weaker than at others, but we do not have to obey it. Sin's power is broken. So when we sin, we've been deceived, we've made a bad choice, we've been conned, we think this is going to be pleasurable, we think we're going to get away with it, but eventually we find out it always happens. It's not fulfilling, it's not satisfying. Repent, confess, get back on track again. Sin is in us, but sin is not powerful in us unless you make it powerful your choice because Jesus has broken the power of sin in you and one day he'll deliver you from the presence of sin Ray Steadman gives this great illustration about putting off and putting on <clears throat> he says when I get up in the morning I put on my clothes and they'll be part of me for the whole day to go where I go and to do what I do so too 
when we put on the Lord Jesus, because that's what the passage goes on to say, put on the armour of light and then put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So too, when we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, we're making him part of life that day. We intend that he go with us wherever we go, that he acts through us in all that we do, that we call on his resources and we rely on him, Ray Steadman. That's how he understood the passage. Put off. Put on. Make no provision for the flesh. Don't plan ahead. Don't think about it. Dismiss it. I'm going to try this. I don't know if this will be helpful or not. I came across this poem, and this is John MacArthur in one of his commentaries on this passage. So I'll read you this poem. And I would value your feedback. I often don't like doing this because sometimes I think, eh, it doesn't matter what I think, I'll read you the poem. When I stand at the judgment seat of Christ and he shows me his plans for me, the plan of my life as it might have been, and I see how I blocked him there. And I checked him there and I would not yield my will. Will there be grief in my saviour's eyes? Grief, though he loves me still. He would have me rich, but I stand there poor, stripped of all but his grace, while memory runs like a haunted thing down a path that I cannot retrace. Then my desolate heart will well nigh break with tears that I cannot shed. I will cover my face with my empty hands. I will bow my uncrowned head. O Lord of the years, that are left to me. I give them to your hand. Take me, break me and mould me to the pattern that you have planned. That's the reality. Jesus is committed to working in us, transforming us to be like him. What was he like? Many answers. This passage, he was loving, caring, and he invites us, commands us, requires us, in fact, to do the same. Four things. Let's cultivate a sense of debt. Certainly pay our debts that we owe, but elevate our understanding of the love debt that we owe to others. We are indebted to love others. Number two. Let's enlarge our understanding of neighbour. Not just those who are next door to us or like us, but it's anyone whom God brings across my path, with whom I am engaged or whom I can help. Number three, let's cultivate a sense of time. It's later than it's ever been before. The day is coming. The night is ending. Jesus is coming. Get on with it. And number four, let us intentionally, deliberately put off the deeds of darkness and every day put on the Lord Jesus, his armour, and let him live in you, through you, to his honour and glory. We're going to pray. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you paid it all. You set us free. And now you've sent your spirit to live in us, 
to be Lord in us. Lord, help us to make choices this day, to put aside the deeds of darkness, to submit and to put on the Lord Jesus. Raise our awareness that with everybody we are in debt, a debt to love as we have been loved. Lord, forgive us for falling short. Awaken us, stimulate us, and help us to be genuine followers of Jesus. To his honour and glory, we ask it. Amen. Let's stand together.